<clears throat> it's crazy to be back. Uh, I live in Chicago now, and I'm a pastor at a church there, and um, Kevin and I have been trying to sort out when I can come and preach again for a while, so it's really great to be back. To tell the story, you need water. To tell that story that each of us is invited to be a character in that story that is larger than any of us but overlooks none of us. To be a part of that story, you need water. The earth was formless and void and darkness hovered over the space of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Moses said to them, do not fear but stand by and see the salvation of your God. And Moses stretched out his hand to the sea, and the Lord swept back the sea by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided, and the sons and daughters of Israel could pass by on dry land. And they walked through, and the water was to them like a wall on their right hand and on their left. You cannot tell the story without water. The last time I was in this space, we were baptizing people. It was Easter Sunday, and Kevin had ordered this, this huge pool thing that we had to put together like, uh, like Legos, and it was up there, and we put the tarp in it, and then we filled it with water, and the next day we got to it, and it was freezing. I mean, that water was cold. And, and, and Kevin and I was like, should we just like boil some water and pour it in? It was like, no, 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 there's no hope. It's just cold. And so the three people that were getting baptized, we told them, hey, guys, this is cold. And they tried to make us feel good. They're like, no, 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 it's fine. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And I stepped in, and I was like, no, 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 <laughs> it's cold. And they were like, ah, no, it'll be fine. So I was getting in there, and I, I was saying some stuff about baptism. And then Lewis steps in, and I swear the Holy Ghost just took his breath. <sighs> And he moved towards me, and I finished what I was going to say about baptism, and I looked at him, and I said, you ready? And he's like, there better be a resurrection, because I don't know if I'm coming out of this. And I dunked Lewis, and he, oh, and then the next two went in, and it was the same thing, and it was incredibly funny. Um, and very memorable. I, they, they're probably scarred by it. Um, I associate this space with baptism. I, I, I don't know what associations you have with baptism. I, I'm guessing it's not as controversial as the table because we only talk about it like once or twice a year. Uh, we don't do it every week. It's, it's, it's a one-off thing. Maybe are you are like uh, my friend Erin who was baptized as a baby when she was, uh, when she was a baby uh, at a Catholic church, mainly to make grandma happy. And then in middle school, she went on a middle school retreat where, where, where she was sort of born again, and there was a baptism, she thinks, that was associated with that. And then in college, in a big mega church in Southern California, they do a baptism at the beach. It was super cool, lots of peer pressure. And so um, she was baptized again. You know, three baptisms later, she's, you know, what, what does baptism mean? Like, what, 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 is, what, is that, what does this mean? Um, or maybe you are like my friend Carl, who grew up in a fundamentalist church, and um, baptism was an act and a set of language that was used really manipulatively. Um, and, and, and if you weren't baptized by this minister 
at this church in this way, then you were in danger of the hellfire that was so often preached. And so Carl, to this day, has never gone near the waters of baptism, and I can't blame him. Um, I, I, I don't know what associations you have with, with baptism. Maybe you are baptized, or maybe you are not baptized, or maybe you've been baptized three times. Um, but, but, but I think for most of us, maybe even for all of us, it is this, this, this category, this set of language, this practice that, you know, we know is supposed to be in the three-part miniseries on the symbols of the faith. I mean, it's talked about a ton in the Bible. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. It's talked about all the time. We know that it's a sacrament. Um, but on Monday morning, when the alarm goes off, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know what water has to do with it, has to do with the story. And so Kevin asked me to preach on baptism, and I was super excited. I love thinking about baptism, because it's kind of this conundrum that the church never really knows how to use. And, but what do I preach on? Do I talk about water in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, covenant in the Old Testament, covenant in the New Testament, talk about all the controversies of baptism, how baptism was used in the early church, or in the Reformation, or how it's been used in the last hundred years, or how it's been used in America. Or we could talk about baptism as, as being personal, but not private, or being a public confession, or as being an in initiation into the community of faith. We could talk about what God's doing in baptism, what we're doing in baptism, what the Holy Spirit's doing in baptism. And so I wrote a 120-point sermon on baptism. <laughs> but that's not helpful, I don't think. And there are all sorts of answers that I'm, uh, questions that I'm not really going to get to this morning as we think about baptism. I was overwhelmed, and so I looked to the lectionary, which is at our church, we, we preach out of the lectionary, which is this set of scriptures that's kind of planned out throughout the whole year. And so you just, you, you get to the week and you say, okay, what's, 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 what are the scriptures for this week? And you kind of walk through a good swath um, of scripture that way. And I looked and there's a text from Ezekiel 37 that was assigned for this Sunday. And Ezekiel 37 is the story of the valley of dry bones. And it's not a text about baptism, but as I looked at it, it is a text about death and resurrection. And Baptism is about death and resurrection. And I looked at it, and, 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 and it's a story about God's stubborn love for his people and about their identity. And baptism is about God's stubborn love for his people and about their identity. And so I'm going to preach a sermon on Ezekiel 37 that has three parts. Death, word, resurrection. And there are going to be touch points to baptism throughout it. It's going to tell the story of death, word, and resurrection. And at the end, I'm going to tie baptism more directly to it. And my hope this morning is that if you are baptized, that you will leave encouraged by that fact, maybe even believing that it's relevant. If you've been baptized, I hope it makes a difference for your Monday morning. I hope you wake up and say, I am baptized today. And I hope saying that makes all the difference in the world. And if you haven't been baptized, then I hope you hear an invitation, not to some re bizarre religious experiment that might have been manipulative at one point, but an invitation to let God speak the words of baptism over you. You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me, 
And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, mortal, can these bones live? I answered, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy. Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put my breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. And I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you'll know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I'll put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil. Then you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. To whom, O Lord, shall we turn? You have the words of life. Amen. Part one is death. If you want to talk about baptism or resurrection or the gospel, part one is always death. Judah is completely cut off. There is no hope. Like the the story, it ends. Um, God's people had split into two, Israel and Judah, 722, Israel's gone. Judah's left. Judah has Jerusalem and the temple. And and, and so as long as Judah is still a nation, God's covenant promises to his people, God's plan to redeem the entire world through a people, still has some breath, still has some legs, because Judah still exists. They have the temple. God sits in the temple. It's okay. They're living under Babylonian rule in in, in 600 but, but, but they still exist as a people until in 588, Zedekiah is the king and just makes a dumb decision to go behind Babylon's back. And so 2 Kings tells us that Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon with all of his men. And I don't know if he brought all of his men, but he brought enough. And they surround Jerusalem and lay siege to it for two years. For two years, Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of Babylon until they are eating anything that moves and things that don't move until their children are starving and dying. And at the end of two years, they try to make a break for it. Some of them flee south to Egypt. Zedekiah and some of the young men try try to go out, but they're trampled down by the army. Jerusalem is razed to the ground and the temple is burned. It's an ugly sight. And the book of 2 Kings ends... um, Second Kings is like the history book. It, it, it ends so bleakly. It, it, it ends saying um, this picture of the princes of Judah like living on handouts from Babylon. Some have gone off to Babylon. Some have fled to Egypt. The poorest of the poor stay near Jerusalem to, to, to tend the olive fields so that Babylon can continue to, take, um, to use them as a resource and make money off of them. But the story's over. Like, that's it. 
Like, it was fun. The, 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 being God's people was a good run, but it's over. And Judah is, is left without a nation, without a city. And who are you when you have no city, when you have no nation? The temple's burned down, and so they're asking themselves all sorts of questions about had God met his match in the gods of Babylon? Were all the stories that we heard about our forefathers just fairy tales? Had God stopped listening? Had God forgotten his covenant promises or been fed up enough? Who are you when you, you have no city, you have no place, you are, you're finished? We are completely cut off. This is the valley of dry bones. And when I first, when I first um, was reading this text, I thought of... Um, I thought of when I was in Rwanda, when I studied abroad, in, 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 I studied abroad in East Africa in college, and we spent some time in Rwanda, and we went to, to one of the museums that memorializes the genocide there that took place in 1994, and in the span of 100 days, over 800,000 people were slaughtered in Rwanda in 1994. And that's the sort of statistic that like, doesn't even make an impression on you because it's too absurd to wrap your head around. And, we are too familiar with those kinds of statistics today. 800,000 people in 100 days in a genocide in Rwanda. They, they, we went to one of the sites where they have room after room after room full of dry bones. Skulls sat on shelves like books. And I remember as we were leaving the museum and going back to our hostel and our usually rambunctious group was silent until one of the fellow students turned to me. She knew I was a Christian, and she said, tell me about your God after seeing that. Tell me about your God after seeing that. And I was speechless, which is, I think, the right answer. I was, I was speechless. Tell me about your God after seeing that. Imagine that is the sort of question, that, the sort of sentiment that Judah is feeling, that maybe Babylon is saying after Judah is no more, after the stories of their God seems all for naught. Tell me about your God after seeing that. Can these bones live? No, they can't. They're dry bones. Dry bones don't live. Where is God in a world where there is a genocide for every decade where the dry bones seem to outnumber the flowers in the fields ten to one where the valleys of shadow and death cast their shadows long over the places of green pasture that we read about in the Psalms where is God in that world I think, too, of neighborhoods in Chicago with abandoned streets and vacant lots and the bones of too many innocent people are buried in our cemeteries there. There are times when I'm hopeless, parts of town I've given up on. There are global and, and national and citywide valleys that are overwhelming. And there are personal valleys, too. There are anxieties and fears that we go to bed with every night that are there with us when we wake up that are still there in the morning. There are voices that keep us in the valley of death, voices in our heads that prod us 
keep us from contentment, always telling us that we're not enough, always keeping us striving after idealized versions that exist in our heads, the versions of us that are more faithful, that pray more often, that look a little better, that wake up a little earlier in the mornings, that get a little bit more work done, that are further ahead in their careers. This cycle of death. And if baptism is going to mean anything for us on Monday morning, it's going to have to deal with these realities. Part one is death. Part two is the word. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise like Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. Ezekiel begins to prophesy, and as the word of the Lord hits the bones, they begin to rattle like a wave pulling back against seashells. The bones begin to rattle to make a noise when the word of the Lord is spoken to them. I imagine something like this happening on the National Mall in August of 1963 when Martin Luther King Jr., took his place behind a podium and spoke a word that changed the course of American history. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, he said. And the bones began to rattle. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that all men are created equal. And the bones began to rattle. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And the bones began to rattle. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. I have a dream today. And with each melodic repetition of King's famous line, the bones began to rattle. Black and white, Jew and Gentile, Catholic and Protestant, young and old, the word goes forth and King casts a vision that makes the bones begin to rattle. A vision that begins to erode the violent injustice that had created such a valley of despair in the first place. And as Ezekiel prophesies, the bones begin to rattle. They are brought back into place. Wounds that were made by war begin to be healed by the word. Scars from the violence of battle are undone. Bones that were shattered in war are mended. When the word of the Lord goes forth, the effects of violence are reversed. And this is the role of the church, of the baptized people. They are given the prophetic responsibility of reversing the effects of violence by speaking God's word to a world fascinated with violence and power. God's word undoes the cycles of violence and death. This is a truth that Maggie, a woman from Burundi whose family was murdered, understands. She visits the man every week who is responsible for their murder. Why do you come to visit me, the criminal asks. Though you are a criminal, you are still loved by God, is her response. In a short video testimony, she says, of course they must go to prison. Of course they must pay for what they have done, but we mustn't keep anger in our hearts and say they are only criminals. No, they are our brothers, and they are loved by their creator. When God speaks, violence is undone. Cycles of violence are stopped, and death itself is reversed. 
This is the effect of the word going forth, and this is the call and task of the baptized. God does not forego the role of humanity in undoing the cycles of death in this world. He uses the prophet, and when I was baptized, my certificate of baptism read that I was committed to confess the faith of Christ crucified until my life's end. And the message, the faith of Christ crucified, is that the cross is undone in Christ, not sanctioned. Death. The word goes forth and begins to reverse death to undo its effects upon us. And baptism into Christ's death undoes the work of violence and death that surrounds us. Part one is death. Part two is word. Part three is life, resurrection. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Now the Spirit begins to move, and the breadcrumbs of Judah that are left, those scattered in Egypt and Jerusalem and Babylon that Ezekiel is writing to, they, they hear Ezekiel's vision, and they know, they are reminded that the God who created in the beginning could create again, that God is no static deity stuck in the past, but that he is a living God who breathes new life even now. God gives Ezekiel a vision that reminds his people that the God that created once could create again. God breathed into dust and humanity sprang to life. God spoke a word in the beginning and the word created, but it was the breath that gave life. So too here in Ezekiel, God speaks a word and then the spirit brings life. This is the same pattern that we find in John's gospel. When God speaks a word and the word becomes flesh and the flesh dwells among us. This is the pattern of the gospel. But the church, the disciples, are not created until there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts. Until God's Spirit breathes life into them, they don't stand and testify about the one who was raised from the dead. Isn't that interesting? And I think the helplessness of the disciples before Pentecost, and even more so the helplessness of dry bones laying dead in a valley, tell us something important about baptism. I think so often when we talk about baptism in churches, especially in evangelical churches, um, it comes across as if, as if baptism is this um, thing that we do when we've reached a certain point, as if faith is like a fundraising thermometer. And when you hit some certain threshold on the faith thermometer, then you have permission to get baptized because you've got enough stuff figured out that you can finally come to the waters of baptism. But baptism is not what you do when you've figured everything out. Baptism is what you do when you've finally stopped trying to figure everything out. When you have stopped placing faith in yourself or even in your capacity to have faith, when you've opened up your hands and said, I'm done, I am dry bones, unless there is a spirit of God, unless there is a resurrection. I worked at a summer camp 
uh, during college. And one of the games we played with the kids in summer camp was Whirlpool, where you swim in the pool and it all goes one direction and you kind of get carried in the current. And the best way for the kids to go fast is to grab onto a strong counselor and to let them drag you around in the Whirlpool. And my friend Charlie was thinking about this and he wrote this reflection. He writes, I used to tell my cabin that Christ was like a strong counselor in the pool during Whirlpool, and that all they had to do was hold on. He's the strongest counselor. Just hold on to him, I told them. But I never admitted to them how weak a grip can be, how slippery a bare, wet shoulder can be, that the kids who hold on too tight cut slits of blood in the counselor's back. So my greatest fear is not whether I will let go or whether the current will push against me. Both are a certainty. But my greatest fear is that maybe God will stop coming back for me when I lose my grip, or that he will forget to look back, or that he will say to me, Charlie, if only you would have held on. Baptism is not the moment where our grip is finally strong enough such that we know we will never find ourselves back in the valley of despair. It is not the moment where we have answered all of the questions or even silenced all of the doubt. It is the moment the act that grounds our hope in a story larger than our own so that when we find ourselves in the valley of despair, surrounded on the left and on the right by a world where the good news seems to be outnumbered by bad, 10 to 1, when we find that our grip is weak and that we are indeed prone to wander, we have the assurance of a God whose promises are stronger than death itself, whose grip never weakens. And even though Judah is dead, completely cut off, they are bones Even then, God has not given up because he's in the business of resurrection and he has bound himself to a people. He has thrown in his lot with theirs and his covenant promises are sure and the covenant promises of God are what are sealed in the water of baptism. The promises of God's stubborn, unyielding love for us and for the world are taken to the bank every time we dip our hand into the font, every time we remember whose we are. Baptism is the wax seal pressed onto the letter of God's promises. The emperor would send out decrees, taxes, laws on on, on a scroll, on paper. And so you would read the content of what he was sending out. And when you saw the emperor's seal pressed into wax, you knew that it was trustworthy and true. And that's the language the New Testament uses for baptism. It is the sign and seal of God pressed hot onto a paper that reminds us of the promises of God. The promise that I shall be your God and you shall be my people. That if I am for you, what can be against you? The promise that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God. These are the promises that God makes possible for us in Christ. And in baptism, these promises are pressed into hot wax. And we can know that they are trustworthy and that they are true. So when the voices. Tell me that my faith is not strong enough, that I'm not doing enough, that my church is too small, that I don't have enough faith to be a pastor, that I'm not working hard enough or waking up early enough. The voices that say I need to do more, to be more, to have more. The persistent voice that keeps you in the valley of death, the one that tells you that you are not enough. When that voice begins to tell you who you are, turn back to the water, friends where the voice of the one we hear is trustworthy and true, and it says, you are my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved, 
with whom I am well pleased. Not the version of you that you have in your head that's a little bit better, that version that you're always chasing, that version of you that is sitting here today. That is the version that God says, you are my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. In baptism, the words that were said over Christ at his baptism are said over you. When we come to these waters, all other voices are silenced. To tell your story, you need water. You need the waters of baptism where your true name is called to tell the story of death and resurrection, that story that is larger of any of, than any of us but overlooks none of us. We need water. Ezekiel's vision doesn't end in dry bones. It ends with water. In the last two chapters, Ezekiel is taken up to, uh, to, up to the temple which has been remade in this vision and from the temple is flowing streams of life. The water flows east and out the south gate and out the north, and it curls back and comes south. And a man comes and takes Ezekiel's hand and leads him into the water. And he's in to his ankles, and then he's, soon he's up to his knees, and it's up to his waist. And then the man leads him till the water is up to his neck. And Ezekiel says it's a river so strong he could not cross it. Mortal, do you see this? The man asks. When this river enters the sea, the man says, the sea of stagnant waters, they become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature will live. The water will become fresh, and everything will live where the river goes. Friends, Easter is around the corner. The good news has broken into a world where the news has been so bad for so long that when it is good, there are but a few who can hear it. The baptized, the baptized are those few. The good news has broken into a world where the news has been so bad.